And hello and welcome to a special edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, and it's a special edition because last night I received the sad news that my uncle Alan Meyer, Hebrew name Eliyahu Chaim Ben Natan, passed away at the age of 94. He was almost 95. He was approaching his 95th birthday. Um... And he passed away. It was a, a relatively sudden decline for him uh, just over the last couple of weeks going into assisted living and then to hospice care just a couple of days ago. Um, and so despite his advanced age, he actually had been quite not only mentally lucid, but quite physically um, able to get around for the most part until about this year. And obviously it, it, it's a, it hurts and it's a personal story uh, for my family, but it's really an important topic. His life is an important topic for Novak now um, for a number of reasons, but the biggest reason being that this was an extraordinary American Jewish life, and every word of that sentence is really necessary. It was extraordinary. He was an extraordinary American. He was an extraordinary Jewish person, American, and every part of his life really had an American and Jewish signature to it, even though it was incredibly far-flung. Uh, and, and, and those American aspects of his life and those Jewish aspects of his life um, it, it went to places that you would not expect them to be or, or showed up in, in places that you would not expect them to be. So I wanted to dedicate, uh, not only dedicate this edition of Novak Now to my Uncle Alan Meyer, but also just to, to tell a bit of his story. And, you know, the interesting thing about Uncle Alan was, <laughs> there were so many interesting things, but one of the interesting things about him was that he used to really like to make records of things, uh, either in the form of letters or notes that he would write himself. Now, these were not uh, novel-like, necessarily easy-reading documents that he would put together. They weren't terrible either. I mean, you could read his letters and some of his typed-up notes, and, and it would be much more enjoyable and doable <laughs> than going through an academic paper or an academic book, you know, that professors write just to get tenure, that kind of thing. He was better than that, thankfully. But still, it's not, it, it doesn't flow quite easily, and um, I'm hoping that my cousins and I, uh, or, or maybe just my cousins, but I would love to be a part of it, will be able to put together all of the meticulous records that he kept of his life and, and different interactions and different stories from his life, because he did a very good job of that over the years. This was not something that he just took up later in life. He was always very good about either typing letters or typing up notes about major events that happened to him uh, for posterity, I guess, and he was very good at that, and he saved it. So hopefully we'll be able to put together a very flowing narrative, but I'm going to give you the highlights. I'm going to give you the highlights now because, again, this I, I think it's an important lesson that a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life. You know, usually when I'm speaking here on Novak now, or talking to some friends of mine, or or whether they're Jewish or not Jewish, when I talk about things that are of any any kind of a Jewish nature with, and I'm talking about Jewish history here, but certainly also if you're talking about Jewish traditional teachings, whether it's from the Torah or the Talmud, things like that, usually there's a real dichotomy, right? It, the, the people who grew up in a religious home or went to yeshiva will have a much better chance of knowing what I'm talking about, even if it's a Jewish history subject, uh, which isn't always taught in the yeshivas, right? I mean, I'm talking about real Jewish history or not, not uh, accounts from the Torah or from even in the Talmud or the Mishnah, which, of course, 
<laughs> quite often are ver- have been completely verified historically. But I'm talking about things like middle, the, the Middle Ages and times past, the, the era of our sacred books and things like that. Even then, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's quite a bit that a more traditional Jewish person will know just from maybe stories in their family and things like that. And then there's this dichotomy where someone who has grown up in a less religious home or hasn't gone to yeshiva may not know any of those stories. This is an interesting case, though. I think that when it comes to American, some of the most incredible stories of American Jews who played a role in American history or were witnesses to or participants to uh, participants in certain parts of American history, I think even religious and well-educated Jews from a Jewish standpoint are sometimes left in the dark. If I asked 10 yeshiva graduates who Chaim Solomon is, I'm not sure that even six would know who he is. And by the way, he was the, the American businessman who financed quite a bit of George Washington's armies during the Revolutionary War. I think, they, I think that most, I think I could get maybe five, I guess I could get maybe six yeshiva-educated students who might know that. Um, but it's not really well known. And then going all the way down to World War II, I think that there is some Jewish people who know about Jewish participation in the war, both in the Pacific theater and in the European theater. Um, even more importantly, I think that there are a lot of American Jews, particu- you know, especially religious Jews, who fail to recognize the incredible sacrifice that non-Jewish soldiers made, uh, whether it was directly <laughs> to help Jews or not. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I one of the things that I like to do with with Jewish groups is to take them is to see them taken to places like Normandy Beach and the and the cemeteries there, where you see just oceans and oceans and row upon row of crosses and you know you find a jewish star here and there and that it's great that there were jews who participated in the european theater participated in the pacific theater but it's but it's important to remember that the american armies that saved the world were overwhelmingly christian christians so we should it's one of those things that help us start remembering that the christians aren't necessarily our enemies and we owe a debt to and a lot of them were devout christians um, so those things are important to remember. But anyway, um, my uncle Alan was born in Chicago, in the, in, and Chicago is where he lived his entire life with the exception of the years that he spent in the U.S. Army. And I'll talk about that uh, in a moment. But he grew up in a family that was quite wealthy. It was not a first gener. It, w- it was not a... L- old money family by any stretch. His, his father had, had had some success. And he grew up in a, in a comfortable home financially. Um, his home was more traditionally Jewish than my father's larger family. Uh, my Uncle Alan, by the way, is my uncle by marriage. He was my father's sister's husband. But because my father's sister was, she's still, she is still alive, is 10 years older than my father, uh, my Uncle Alan was a part of the family at a very young age for my father. So in other words, it wasn't like everyone was an adult. My father was an adult living his own life, and then his sister got married, and here's this new guy in the family. My father was less than 10 years old uh, when my Uncle Alan became a part, you know, a very close part of our family. Um, But anyway, he grew up in Chicago. He then went on to Harvard University. And for those of you who know about Harvard University and the house college system, you know that that was really what the school was... The undergraduate experience at Harvard was very much based on the house college system. In other words, there were different houses. They were like... In some ways, they were dormitories, but they were much more than that. These were colleges where students were sorted mostly based on their interest and background. Uh, And 
all by the way, this entire house system was pretty much neutered and completely kind of washed over in the 1990s for a number of different reasons, none of which were very good. But there was a time when each house, someone who was in a particular house at Harvard, you knew exactly, uh, or there was a good chance you knew what his uh, major was, there was a good chance you knew what his background was or what his interests were. So, for example, Kirkland House used to always be the house where the athletes at Harvard, um, yeah, especially the elite athletes, they were in Kirkland House. Uh, the science folks were in the Dunster House, um, and on and on. Really, one of the most elite houses for students who had a tremendous command of all kinds of disciplines. It could be, in some cases, science, even though the harder sciences were in other houses. But the fact that science, it was mostly for people who were kind of more literary-minded, people who were likely maybe, maybe would go into the law, history, and also even languages. And Elliott House was elite also in a social way. And so when my Uncle Alan arrived at Harvard in 1943, suffice it to say there were not a lot of Jewish people who were in the elite house that he ended up in, Elliott House. Um, I feel very confident in, in estimating that my uncle was probably one of the first very overt, clear Jewish people at Elliott House. That's how, um, that's how that house was at the time. And as it, ha- as it was, because he had already had an interest in Asian cultures even before Pearl Harbor, but because Pearl Harbor made people even a little bit more aware, <laughs> a lot more aware of Asian culture and Asian society, uh, my uncle decided to really become a serious student of the Japanese language uh, even before college, but certainly in college. And so he's at Harvard for about two years, and suffice it to say, he's excelling at Japanese and Japanese language. And he's excelling so much that it becomes obvious that he needs to leave the school and to begin to join, and, and to join the, the army or one of the other services and serve the country with his knowledge of the Japanese language, which is exactly what happened. He was basically pulled out of Harvard because of his excellent skills at the language, and that became known. And he was taken to a special base in Michigan where he was finished his training, where a lot of his Japanese language academic knowledge was honed and turned to Japanese language skills that could also help in a military setting. And even though he was only 20 years old, he became an officer and, became in, and, and came into the employ and came into the service to General Douglas MacArthur, who was the commander-in-chief of our Pacific Theater in World War II. Now, there's a lot I can say about Douglas MacArthur. Um, the first thing I'll say, it's, it's quite interesting. It, his story and his name are certainly not forgotten in America. That's not my premise. But I believe that his name has really been overshadowed by other generals who were heroes and major leaders in World War II for, I think, mostly political reasons. Also a little bit for the fact that, because of the fact that the Pacific Theater was really a murky story in World War II. The ups and downs of that part of the war are sometimes hard to follow. And of course, as almost any expert will tell you, without the dropping of the atom bombs on Japan, 
who knows how that entire campaign would go. Clearly, but by the time the bombs were dropped over Japan, the tide had turned much quite in favor of the United States and the other countries fighting Japan. But the war was by no means over <laughs> before those bombs were dropped. Um, at least a year of fighting and probably a million lives were saved by the droppings of the bomb. But the fact is that if you talk to Americans today, even Americans who like to talk about history and consider themselves at least amateur historians, you'll hear the names of General Dwight Eisenhower and George Patton much more often. Even President Trump likes to mention General Patton. He did it again on Saturday night, or I guess Friday night, at Mount Rushmore. He's a big fan of General Patton. But you don't hear people talking about Douglas MacArthur very much. Um, and so I think the first reason for that is, again, the, the murky nature and the up-and-down nature of the campaign in Japan. It just wasn't as straightforward as the European campaign. MacArthur didn't become the president of the United States like Dwight Eisenhower did, so that certainly helped Eisenhower's star become shine, the, the shiniest of them all. But also, as, as many of you may know, MacArthur was again called into service to lead our American forces in the Korean War, and his disagreement with, with the President Truman at the time about extending the war into China and to try to really stamp out communism once and for all led to his firing. And as much as I admire General MacArthur and think that he was probably the most effective, when the chips were down and all that, he probably was the most effective general that we've ever had in American history. Whereas Patton was fantastic when it came to certain battles and campaigns. Remember that Patton was never the, the, the manager of all the forces that Eisenhower had to be in Europe and that MacArthur had to be in Japan, in, 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 the, in the Japanese conflict. Um, so, of course, the fact that he was replaced and, and fired by President Truman also has plays a role in the fact that his name is not as venerated and remembered as, today as Eisenhower or Patton. Um, and also, after his firing by Truman, there was a movement among some very right-wing Republicans to get Eisen uh, MacArthur into uh, politics. They really wanted him to run for president in 1952. Uh, and he did not. He, he, he definitely flirted with the idea. The idea that MacArthur was never interested is not true. But he flirted with the idea but decided not to, to take that offer. But getting back to his service in World War II, another thing that people may not know, MacArthur was retired <laughs> before Pearl Harbor. He had retired from the military. He had already had a very distinguished career. He was one of the youngest generals. I believe he was the youngest general ever at the time when he became a, first became a brigadier general. He was a tremendous hero in World War I. He had done wonders to maintain what was kept of the military, which wasn't much between World War I and the lead-up to World War II. But he had retired. He had been retired for a, couple, for a year or so uh, when Pearl Harbor happened. And President Roosevelt, who was not a fan of MacArthur because personally MacArthur was a very arrogant person, and President Roosevelt, Roosevelt even though he was quite affable, was also arrogant, as all people who run for president and become president really have to be. I don't, know, think the, I don't think you can become president in this country unless you're somewhat of a narcissist. And the one thing that an arrogant man hates the most is another arrogant man, but Roosevelt was smart enough to know that he had to have MacArthur back in active duty. So, of course, he was brought back to, to run the Japanese, the Asian theater, or the Pacific theater, whatever you want to call it. And eventually that tide turned, and it wasn't the atom bomb that was the only thing that turned the tide. As I said before, the, the tide had already started to turn in favor of 
MacArthur and the U.S. forces before that, that the, the atom bombs just saved us from what probably would have been more than another year of war, even with a great advantage going to the United States side. So my uncle came to the service of General MacArthur just before the end of the war. This is before the dropping of the atom bombs, but not, but not, but not after. And his job was to be a translator. Now, my uncle was very young. Like I said, he was 20 years old, but he was very high up in that group of interpreters and that group of advisors to General MacArthur. And the reason why, again, for those of you who know your American history, is that because even though there were Japanese Americans who were serving in the armed forces by that time, late in the war, they were still not trusted. I mean, this, the, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, of course, at the beginning of the war, had Japanese Americans on the West Coast interned in concentration camps. They were not death camps or starvation camps or anything else like that, but they were, they, they were taken from their homes and they were forced to live in camps, as many of you know. Even after those camps were either disbanded or people who joined... Of course, if you were willing to join the armed forces, you could get out of those internment camps. Japanese Americans were not allowed to be officers and certainly not senior officers. So even though he was only 20 years old, my uncle had a pretty senior position with General MacArthur. And during his years with General MacArthur, which stretched well into General MacArthur's military governorship of Japan, as many of you know, also, after the war ended... General MacArthur was made the governor of Japan by, by the United States government. And he was the military government, and his rule was, was absolute. <laughs> and many of the things that my uncle did for General MacArthur had to do with interrogating and gathering intelligence on top Japanese officials and generals and admirals who had surrendered, who had been captured or surrendered. And, of course, my uncle told me many stories about that period in Japan, I think one of the most interesting is that the fact is that my uncle found out very quickly from his interrogations that there was a pretty even split among the top elite people in Japan, the elite military and the elite government folks who had surrendered or, or been captured. There was a pretty even split. Some of them were willing to move on, modernize, uh, work with the Americans, and, and change Japanese, Japanese society, and about half of them weren't. Half of them wanted to cling to the Shintoism, half of them wanted to cling to the... Um, the deifying of the emperor and all of that. And MacArthur was very, very shrewd in understanding how to deal with that. And my uncle told me, and this is not always really written about so much in the books, my uncle told me that MacArthur insisted on the most fervent worshipers of the emperor, the most fervent, the most fervent traditionalists, to be put into the same jail cells every night with the people who were the most fervent about modernizing, knowing full well that there would be violence in those jail cells every night among those survivors, those captured elites. And there was. In fact, very often there would be somebody dead the next morning. And MacArthur was very, had great moral clarity about this. He said, we can either have somebody, people die in these cells by the ones and twos on a weekly basis, or we can have 100,000 or 200,000 dead in the streets of Tokyo. Let's decide what we're going to do here. He would not be morally shamed into making a bad decision, and he wasn't. So that's one incredible story. Another story from a Jewish point of view is that in, I suppose, April of 1946, my uncle decided to have a Seder. <laughs> and it probably was the first organized Seder. I, can, I can't imagine there have been an organized Seder in Tokyo before 1946, and my uncle arranged one. But he found a way to arrange one with a few other Jewish soldiers uh, who, were, who were there. Um, and he always ta told some great stories about how hard that was to arrange and then how much fun it was when they put it together. 
Um, he ended up having a tremendous affinity with the Nisei. That's the, that's the official name of Japanese Americans. With the Nisei troops that he met and the Japanese people that he met during his time with MacArthur. And when he came back to the United States, he kept that relationship going so strongly that uh, in his 70s, he was voted and made the commander of his Nisei uh, veterans post in Chicago. So to have a Caucasian, non-Japanese American person be the commander of their post even for a couple of years, obviously that was a tremendous and great honor. He was a great protector and friend of Japanese Americans in this country. And um, that was one of my favorite things about him. Um, he came back from the war, finished up at Harvard, as many people did, which is really interesting. Can you imagine going back to college <laughs> in a college life in a college setting after have fighting a war like that and doing the service that he did for MacArthur in, in Tokyo during his governorship? But he did that. Um, then came back to Chicago, went to law school at Northwestern, married my aunt, had four children. And uh, my cousins, uh, you know, of all the great things I can say about my uncle, and they're quite a bit, Maybe the greatest testament to him and my aunt is the fact that the, his three, he had four children, three of whom survived. He had one who passed away as a child. But his three children, who, be, who were my cousins, who I've known my, my whole life, I mean, one is just more fantastic than the next. These are great, great people. <laughs> they're hardly kids. They're, I think the youngest one is about 11 years older than I am, so it's not like they're children anymore. But my three cousins, uh, my Uncle Alan's three children who, who, who lived to adulthood who have, and are, are still alive and well, uh, just wonderful people and have been you know, good cousins and good people. So that's always a great thing. That's always, I'm sorry to say, it's just one of those things that uh, you can't really judge a person, I think, unless you can see how he, his or her, her children have turned out. And, and sometimes it's not fair to do that, but it's, it's too much of a coincidence to have three, uh, to have children who are, who are three great people like my cousins. And I know this is a tough time for them uh, to have lost their dad th- at this time. But Another story about him is that he was a tremendous, tremendously proud Jew. He was not a, as an Orthodox Jew, but as I found out, as I've learned quite a few times throughout my life, especially the times in my life where I've lived in places where there are not many Jews, living as an overt, outward Jew and proud Jew throughout the world and at times when it may not seem appropriate or easy to do is, is, is quite impressive. And he was, of course, that kind of a person. I've told you about the, the Seder he arranged in Tokyo in 1946, which he certainly didn't have to do or wasn't under any requirement from a, from a public standpoint to do. Um, he became very active in the synagogue, the very large synagogue, for those of you who know Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, that, that big, large synagogue on the north side, right on Lakeshore Drive is Temple Sholem. And yes, I know the Hebrew word is pronounced shalom, but in, in Chicago, you call it sholom if you know anything about Chicago. And he became very active in that synagogue and an important protector of the legacy of that synagogue. For many decades, the rabbi there was a man named Rabbi Binstock. And he passed away and his wife, Mrs. Binstock, the rabbi said, was, was still an active member for many years. And for whatever reason, this is not an uncommon story, the synagogue not taking care of him and his, her and her family financially. Um, and it's a pretty well-known story, or if not by his boasting, because he certainly wasn't interested in getting any credit for it. But my uncle made sure that that was taken care of. And he also made sure that life at Temple Sholem was very active uh, for as much as he could. He, ta- he taught classes there, sometimes of a Jewish nature, some just times just talking about his experiences in Japan. But he was really the quintessential American Jew he always talked about his time in the, and he never said the army. He always said the service. 
And I really think that that was an, another aspect of my Uncle Alan that was very Jewish. The idea that to serve one's country was the, was the paramount factor. That's really what you needed to do. You didn't say, oh, I was in the military, I was a veteran. Uh, he would say, this is when I was in service. And for those of you who have heard me on, on Novak now here on the Nachum Siegel Network, you know that I'm, I, I've struggled for years with, with the fact that we eliminated the military draft in this country. I think that overall, from a military standpoint, it is a good thing. It certainly made our military better. But it's also we've also paid dearly for it because we don't have a service aspect of our society for our young people to pursue that's very, very clear other than if they volunteer for the military. And I think that's important. I would really like to see other options besides just the military for our young people when they come out of high school or even when they come out of college, something that they can do in service to the country. Um, and it may even need, maybe it needs to be mandatory. And it doesn't necessarily have to be military, but he would always say in service. It was never in the service or in the military. And I think that that was a Jewish, I think that was part of his Jewish soul whenever he said things like that, because as you know, responsibility is really very paramount in, in Jewish culture and Jewish law and Jewish ethics. You'll notice that if you read the, 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 the Torah, if you read the Jewish Bible, if you read the, the, all the other things that you, you can possibly read from our sacred texts, you never hear about, quote, human rights or things that are owed to us. You hear about responsibilities, which I've always felt is not only the more moral and ethical way to look at it, but it's also the more effective. If you tell people all over the world, here's what you deserve, here's what you are, here's what you get, but you don't say from the beginning, here's what you must provide to others, then you've got a problem. In other words, I would much rather read a document that says all human beings have a responsibility to protect the freedoms of others, to protect the world from slavery, to protect the world from violence, to protect the world from attacking others, as opposed to you have the right to be free you have the right to, be, to live, uh, to, to not be attacked. All, that's wonderful too. But understand, if you come from the point of view of it's our responsibility to provide these rights to others and to protect them for others and for ourselves, then I think it's going to be much more effective. And I think that's, what, something, that, I think that's something that my uncle understood, especially in the way that he said, you know, this is in service, the service to people. Um. My family's history in the city of Chicago is quite long. I only personally lived in Chicago, have lived in Chicago for a really short time, just about a year. Uh, I keep visiting and going so often that it seems more than that, but I was there for graduate school, for my, and, my, and that wasn't even my entire graduate school time in graduate school. There was some time that was in, in, in Washington, D.C., just, just, for, just to, make, to make the facts straight, to keep the facts straight there. But my family's been there really since well before the Civil War, Uncle Alan, my Uncle Alan's family also had a pretty long history in Chicago before he married into, into my family. But it's an interesting story of American Jewish history that, to understand that, isn't, that New York is not the only American Jewish city, that Jews came to every city in the United States. And especially anywhere where there was a port, you know, Chicago is right on Lake Michigan there, anywhere where there was a, a growth in a city, at the, in the 19th century, Jews were very likely to go there. It's important to remember that 
For example, at the start of the Civil War, there were just as many Jews living in the Confederacy as there were living in the Union, give or take a thousand or two here or there, because the ports of the South were, were important places for Jews to be. And my Uncle Alan's interest in Jewish history was very, very strong as well. Again, his name was Eliyahu Chaim ben Natan, born in 1925, passed away in 2020. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.